0: This great biblical doctrine is actually a battleground where people have have fought over the years. It was then, for after Jesus had finished these sayings, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And it is now, oh probably after a discussion on the security of the believer, there will not be a stoning, at least I hope not, but it probably will not meet with absolute acceptance or approval. There are some who believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer with the deepest conviction, and there are others who reject it with deep sincerity. Those who reject it say that it would be dangerous to believe such a doctrine as this. It would lead to a life of sin, and indifference, carelessness, and even indolence. And there are others who say that it would be they could not believe in the doctrine of the security of the believer because they feel that it would be the height of presumption to believe that a person could know that he's been saved and know that he has been saved everlastingly. The doctrine of the security of the believer are sometimes called perseverance of the saints are called Once Saved, Always Saved, I want you to know that I believe it with the deepest personal conviction. And so as I come to speak this morning, I do so out of the bias of that conviction. I do not have an open mind on the subject. I must confess that I have a closed mind about this. I believe it with the deepest conviction. I do not uh, accept the possibility that the Bible is contradictory that it teaches in one place that a person can have eternal salvation and teaches in another place that he can be lost again. So I come to you with that kind of bias. But I ask you to join with me in discovering what the Bible says about it. If what I say this morning sounds illogical or If what I say today about the doctrine of security does not jibe with what you've always been taught or thought or what some other denomination has said, would you at least join me in the search or discovery of what the Bible says about it? You have the Bible there. I want you to open it and hold it on your lap. And I want us to see what we can find from the scripture. I asked a man one time if he were a Christian. He said, yes, I've been a Christian off and on for 20 years. I don't believe that's possible. I don't believe that a person can be saved today and lost tomorrow. I don't believe there's any such thing as an off and on again, Christianity. Now, I may sound presumptuous to some of you, but it's never presumptuous to see what the Bible says about it. And with the text before you then, I notice, first of all, a relationship. Everything that Jesus is going to say in this passage is based upon ownership. That's the relationship I'm talking about. There it is and the figure is before you. My sheep, it's just that plain. My sheep, he is the possessor, he owns us. Now the Bible does not teach that a church member can be saved just because he's a church member that He's going to be saved either now or everlastingly. It doesn't teach that. But the Bible does teach that salvation is for true believers. And the only salvation that the Bible knows anything about is called eternal life, eternal salvation. It's for true believers. And it does teach that when a person is a true believer in Jesus Christ, he will be saved everlastingly. And the reason why he will be saved everlastingly is because he is the purchased possession of the Redeemer and he was purchased at the price of his own blood. Anybody who denies, in my opinion, the security of the believer is blind to great sections of Scripture and they're looking at, at at life, some experience in life rather than at the Scripture itself and they're judging the Scripture by what they see in life rather than judging life by what they see in the Scripture. Martin Luther, the founder of... Modern Lutheranism was a believer in the security of the, of the believer. He believed in once saved, always saved. That may blow somebody's mind. The founder of the Reformation, the father of modern Lutheranism, believed in once saved, always saved. But he had a nurse that didn't, who cared for his children. And one day he came home and, and they were in a discussion about this doctrine and he said to this nurse, to this... Care, caretaker of his children suppose I came home today and and you had given up my children to adoption you had signed them away and adopted them to some other parents would that transaction be valid and the nurse said of course it wouldn't be valid well why wouldn't it be valid and he said because she said because those children are not mine they're yours and you're the only one who has that authority he said then then lady let me tell you that your eternal soul redeemed and purchased by God is no more yours than my children are you can't give it away to the arch enemy because it's not yours that transaction is invalid it is the exclusive property of the Lord Himself. He made it and when it was lost, He redeemed it. He purchased it. Suppose I came to your house today to counsel your children. There's little Johnny five and little Mary three and I sat down with them as their pastor to counsel them. I said to your children, your parents love you very much. They dearly love you. They You're their children, the only ones they have. And as long as you obey them, you'll be their children. But if you ever do anything that disappoints them or disobeys them, they'll put you out in the street and you'll no longer be their children. What kind of counsel is that? And how long would I be pastor of this church if I gave that kind of counsel? I know what happens in Durant. If I said that to your children today, it would be all over this town tomorrow and I'd be packing up and moving out before the celebration of one year. What kind of counsel is it to stand in the pulpit and say, You're God's children, but if you ever do anything that disappoints Him or disobeys Him, He'll put you outside of grace. What kind of counsel is that? Is your love greater than God's love? And is your compassion and mercy and keeping power greater than His? It's a relationship. And he defines the relationship three ways. He says, first of all, my sheep hear my voice. There is that inner communication between God and His own. The scripture says it like this, His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He communicates to the deep of man, to the believer. J.W. Watts was a missionary to Palestine for many years. When When he died, he was professor of Old Testament at New Orleans Seminary. He said one day he went out walking in the countryside in Palestine and he came to this watering place, kind of an oasis. And he saw this Bedouin shepherd come with a little flock of sheep to water them at noonday. And he said, I sat down there and was visiting with him, and his sheep were drinking, watering, and they went over to rest in the shade. He said, after a little while, another shepherd came with his flock. And he said, I watched to my amazement, that other shepherd's sheep began to mix with this shepherd's. And he said, they weren't branded, they weren't marked. As a matter of fact, he said, they looked exactly alike. And he said, pretty soon another shepherd with his flock of sheep came. And there were about six shepherds and six different flocks of sheep. And they were all just mixed together around that watering place. And he said, I wondered how in the world they were going to divide those sheep when it was over. He said, the answer to that question came when after a little while the first shepherd got up. It was time for him to leave. He walked off to the side of the watering place and he cupped his hands over his mouth. And he let out a cry and he said all over that flock of sheep heads came up. And the sheep that belonged to that shepherd stood up and they came to attention and he just started walking off and they just started trotting after him. And he said, the second shepherd walked off to the side, did the same thing, but his voice was different, different sound, different call. He put his hands to his mouth and put his call into the air and his sheep raised their heads and they trotted off. He said, I sat there and was astounded and amazed and all of a sudden it dawned on me what Jesus is talking about. When he said, my sheep hear my voice. Folks. The sheep of another shepherd are oblivious to His voice. They don't hear it nor do they understand it. If you're not hearing His voice, if you're following some other shepherd, it's because you're not of His. Then He says, and I know them. And that word know there means, and the, the, the idea is just pregnant. It suggests that the intimacy of the involvement of God in the life of His own. The word know there means the relationship, the deep, intimate, physical relationship, personal relationship that a man would have with his wife. He's intimately caught up in our lives. But it also refers to His omniscience. It means that He knows everything about us. Now follow me and the rationale. When I came to God to be saved, He knew all about me. I didn't hide anything from Him. So when I came to God, He accepted me just as I was. And His acceptance was not based upon, hear me, was not based upon my acceptability. His acceptance of me was based upon my faith in His grace. So that my, his keeping of me is not based upon, can I coin a word, is not based upon my keepability. His keeping of me is based upon the same faith in the same grace. Now follow just a step further, follow the rationale if God is omniscient that means he knows everything he knows the end from the beginning he knows the first from the last and the last from the first he knew all of my sin when I came to him for salvation he knew that and he knew the sin that I would commit in the future if he's omniscient does it seem logical That God, knowing the sin that I had committed in the past and accepting me anyway, knowing the sin that I would commit in the future, does it seem rational that God would save me if He knew I would be lost later on? Why would He save me in the first place? Then He says, and they follow me. Now, my mother used to say that, Gerald, you've got about as much tact as a freight train. And, um, you know, and, and, and there's only one way that I can say anything, and that's just to say it like it is. So I just want to say it like it is. If you're not following Jesus, you're not His sheep. My sheep follow me. That means that they follow His example He set before us. It means to follow in holy obedience His commandment. It, it means to follow on to know the Lord. Now the big mistake some of us make is this, that if we, we imply and sometimes we teach straight out, That all you've got to do is just walk an aisle and profess that you're a Christian and you'll always be saved. The kind of saving faith that I find in the New Testament makes a difference in one's life. He begins to follow Jesus. And if he's following some other shepherd, he doesn't belong to Christ. Now let me see if I can illustrate that. When a person is born with a propensity to sin, born with the old sin nature and then by choice he becomes a sinner. He begins, he lives on the, on, the, on the level of that old sin nature. Look at this right here on this level. Ephesians 2 describes that kind of life, the level of the old sin nature. It says, Paul says, that we live according to the course of this world we do the desires of our heart our, our depraved nature we follow the prince of the air we live on the basis of the old nature but when a person is born again he gets a new nature he's born of God The scripture refers to it in many places as this, that he gets the seed of God so he moves to a new level. Here's the old sin nature level, here's the new nature level. The the life that comes from God, the nature that comes from God is up here. And he cannot live on the basis of the old sin nature any longer. He can't continue in that lifestyle. Why? Because he has a new nature. Now, he may drop down to this level from time to time. It doesn't mean he, that he's sinless. He may drop down to this level from time to time, but he can't abide there. He can't continue there. He has to live on the basis of the new nature. Now, you say, Preacher, where do you get that? I want to show you. I just want to read this verse to you. It'll step out and it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll speak to you. First John 3, 9, it says, No one who is born of God... Practices sin. Oh, listen to that. That's as plain as you can get. No one who is born of God keeps on sinning. Practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. His nature abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now let me give you just a little Greek lesson here. There are two tenses in the Greek, at least two. There is the aorist tense and there is the present tense, linear action. Aorist tense in the Greek means point of time, punctiliar action, point of time. It's like this, I shot the rabbit. That's aorist tense, point of time, in the past. Linear action is continuous, unlimited action. It's like this, I am shooting the rabbit. Now what John says, that a man who is born of God cannot, it's linear action, present tense, cannot continue the sin life any longer. He cannot practice sin as he practiced it before. Continuous action, shooting the rabbit. Why? Because the seed of God abides in him. My sheep follow me. That means that God's children are walking after him and living on the basis of the new nature that's the relationship but what are the rewards of eternal salvation there are two or three in the text he says and I give them eternal life notice I give it for salvation is not a wage to be earned Nor is it a prize to be merited or a crown to be won. It is a gift that's sovereignly bestowed. And it is eternal. Eternal has two qualities, two natures about it. It is quantitative. That means it is continuous. It is unlimited, continuous action. He lives forever who is born of God. But it is not only quantitative, it is qualitative. It means that he has the very life of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. That very life of God is imparted to those who are savingly linked to Jesus Christ. And that's why Shelley could say this morning that Christ's life makes joy reasonable. The life of God is imparted to the believer through his faith in Jesus. God's own life revealed in Jesus Himself. And they shall never perish. The person who has been born again will not lose his salvation. How can he if God is responsible for it? I was talking to a man of another group that does not believe in eternal security and, and I was mentioning to him about this illustration about being in his hand he said well it doesn't say you can't jump out of God's hand yourself but this verse this phrase says and they shall never perish the first words of Romans 8 say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus And the last words of Romans 8 says, And nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Dwight L. Moody used to say, I'd rather live in the middle of Romans 8 than in the middle of the Garden of Eden. For I'm hedged in on the front by no condemnation and I'm hedged in in the back by no separation. And that's eternal security. And they shall... Not pluck them out of my hand. Let's just suppose this morning that Michelle and I are up on top of the roof of this church. You might be surprised if you saw me up there, but maybe not if you saw Michelle. But she and I are up on the roof of this church. And she starts to fall. As she starts to fall, I reach to grab her to save her. And as I reach to grab her, she grabs my hand. She grasps my hand arm and as she's hanging there holding on to my arm I'm saying to her hold on Michelle hold on as long as you hold on you'll be safe and outside there you stand and you're saying to Michelle you're encouraging her hold on Michelle don't turn loose hold on and you'll be safe as long as I hold on as long as she holds on to me she's safe Her security is based upon her ability and her strength. But let's suppose that when she starts to fall from the top of this church, I reach out and grasp her hand. I reach out and grasp her arm. Then she is saying to me, Daddy, hold on to me. As long as you hold on, I'm safe. And you're saying to me, not Michelle, Gerald, hold on to her. As long as you hold on, she's safe. For her security and her safety is not based upon her strength and her ability to hold out, but upon mine. Folks, long before I reached out to take God's hand, he reached down and took mine. A long time before I ever began to hold out, he was holding on. And my security is not based upon my strength or my ability, but upon his. They're in my hand, said Jesus, and my hand is in God's. Now what are the reasons for it that I'm through for eternal security? There are two in the text. First of all, Jesus says, because the Father gave them to me. Way back in eternity past, before you and I were ever born, God saw us and the whole expanse of our life. And He knew who of us would respond to His grace and would receive Christ as our Savior. And those that He knew in His foreknowledge would respond to His grace. Those He gave in eternity past, before there ever was a world, He gave us to Jesus. And in that high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of John, He said to the Father, He said, I'm coming back, Father, to Thy glory, and not a single one that You've given Me have I lost. And the second reason for that eternal security is because, as Jesus said, My Father is greater than all. Is there anything that you can do that is greater than His grace? Is there any sin that is greater than His grace? Is there any enemy that is greater than the Father? The arch enemy was defeated when Jesus was raised from the dead. God broke His back. When he brought Jesus from the grave, so that he who is within us is greater than he that is in the world. Grady Cawthon said, After World War II was over, our ship was docked in Manila in the Philippines. And the scuttlebutt, that's Navy talk, Navy gossip, was that we were going to go around the Cape and go to England. We had 2,000 troops on board. The war was over, and we'd gathered these troops up, and they were on ship. The word was we were headed around the Cape to England. Others said we are going to Hong Kong. Some gossip said they were going to Japan. Some said we're going home. That day the lines were thrown off and the boatswain's whistle sounded on the deck of the ship, and over the PA system came this statement. This is Captain A.B. Leggick speaking. Give me your attention. We've just received word. We're to steam full bore to Uncle Sugar, Uncle Sam. We're going home. And he said, from the black gang down in the boiler room to the... Watch in the crow's nest. From the forecastle to the fantail, there went up a jubilant shout, We're going home. As we steamed past Corregidor and Batan, he said, We tossed a mental salute to the people who died there. We had a man on board who went into the Luzon jungle with a company of 200 men. Only seven came out alive that man stood sober on the deck as we passed nearby. And then he braced his shoulders and smiled. We were going home. We had two weeks of rough sea and all of the troopers were sick and some of the ship's crew. But it was different now because we were going home. Behind us were the hells of Iwo Jima Behind us were the long night watches and the tense moments as we identified the enemy aircraft, the dehydrated eggs and potatoes. Everything was different now because we were going home. The sun came up on that day through thinning fog between twin peaks, and Golden Gate Bridge looked like the gates of glory. The Red Cross sent out a small band in a little ship to serenade us. We didn't know whether they were great musicians or not, but to us, he said, they sounded like angels. When the gangplank hit the dock, we were home. He said, I used that cross on my sleeve for the first time, and I got ahead of the line, made a call to Alameda. She said, Hello, and I knew that I was home. He said, we bought more candy than we could eat. We we bought more flowers than our women could wear. And we laughed and we looked and we privately wept because we were home. Folks, the war is over. The enemy has been defeated. God has won the battle. We're in His hands. And one of these days, we're just going to go home. And so I can say to you this morning that I have that confidence and peace that I have been saved forever. And one day that salvation will be complete when I get home. Now, I wonder if there's anyone this morning who would like to have the gift of eternal life. To become the possession of the Lord Himself. To be born of God. To get the new nature. To become a new creation. To have life that never ends. You can have that gift simply by taking it. Would you, by faith this morning, trust God for salvation? Would you trust Jesus as your Savior? Would you accept His gift? after we've had prayer we'll invite you to come just publicly to say i want the gift of eternal life others of you may need to come for rededication of life you've been saved but you haven't been following him this period of time in your life you're not following him it's bothering you some of you may need to come To place your life here in service of God together. After I've led us in prayer, we'll ask the choir to sing and we'll invite you to come. Father, I thank you for the eternal word that is eternal truth about an eternal life. And I thank you, dear Lord, that when a young man came to you one night to say, I've sinned. I'm lost I need to be saved that salvation came forever thank you for keeping me thank you that that grace avails forever I'm ashamed father for every sin and I confess it and I pray for a deeper commitment and a closer walk And for those of us today, Father, who do not know eternal security, I pray they'll come accepting Christ, trusting Him for salvation. For it's in His name I pray it.